for coming. Our speaker today is Max Abrams, who's a postdoc this year at Dartmouth and will be one at uh, Johns Hopkins next year. Uh, he's already published two extremely important articles in international security on terrorism. Uh, and he's got another article coming out in comparative political studies any minute now. Um, he's uh, now, as you can see from the title of the talk, expanding his reach a little bit. So like the terrorists, he's trying to take over the whole world and yeah. see, how, see how it works out here. Although the terrorists don't succeed. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I'll just uh, delve right into it now. So, one of the biggest assumptions in IR theory is the political usefulness of violence. Since Schelling, bargaining theorists have focused on showing how violence lends credibility to threats which helps challengers to achieve their demands. This rationalist approach to bargaining is among the most productive research programs in IR in terms of generating all sorts of theoretical extensions and papers, thousands and thousands of them since the 1960s. And yet, from the vantage of bargaining theory, empirical research on terrorism poses a puzzle. For non-state actors, terrorism does, in fact, signal a credible threat in comparison to less extreme tactical alternatives. But empirical study after empirical study shows that using terrorism actually lowers the likelihood of government concessions, particularly as the level of terrorist violence rises. This apparent tendency for terrorist violence to impede concessions challenges the external validity of bargaining theory as traditionally understood. In Kuhnian terms, the negative coercive value from escalating represents a new anomaly to the reigning paradigm and invites a reassessment of it. That's the subject of my talk today a reassessment of bargaining theory, or more specifically, the rationalist approach to bargaining in IR. First, I'll summarize the core premise of bargaining theory that violence lends credibility to threats and thereby helps challengers to achieve their demands. Second, I'll apply this framework to non-state actors by describing how terrorist violence in particular enhances the credibility of their threats in seeming accordance with mainstream rationalist theory. Third, I'll present the anomaly, growing empirical evidence that using terrorism, that escalating to terrorism or with terrorism actually lowers the likelihood of government compliance despite increasing the credibility of the threat. Fourth, I'll try to account for this anomaly by proposing and testing a new concept in IR, which I call the credibility paradox. And finally, I'll probe the generalizability of the credibility paradox beyond the tactic of terrorism. Together, the talk will hopefully shed some light on why, for the better part of a century, our field has systematically overrated the political utility of violence particularly as an instrument of coercion. 
Bargaining theory is a, is a product of the Cold War. And for this reason, it's traditionally focused on conflicts between states rather than challenges to them from below. The basic idea is that violence is strategic behavior that lends credibility to threats and thereby helps challenger states to achieve their demands. The presumed relationship between violence and concessions is monotonic. The greater the amount of violence threatened or inflicted, the greater the likelihood of government concessions, all else equal. This is because under anarchy, with private information, escalation reveals that challengers possess both the will and ability to impose physical costs for non-compliance. Fighting reveals that challenger states are resolved because it inflicts all sorts of costs on them that bluffers wouldn't be prepared to accept. So bargaining theory emphasizes that first, war is costly in blood and treasure, and that these sunk costs help to separate the bluffers from the truly committed. Second, bargaining theory highlights that fighting in, uh, incurs not only these sunk costs for challenger states, but it leaves something to chance, as Thomas Schelling would say, which is the idea that escalation is risky business because the situation can spiral out of control, generating a, ultimately an even costlier conflict than the precipitating situation. And finally, bargaining theory highlights that fighting can, under certain conditions, incur audience costs by offending constituencies of support independent of the target of the pressure. In these ways, bargaining theory highlights that fighting is costly for challenger states and that these costs help to separate the bluffers from the truly committed, thereby enhancing the credibility of the threat and ultimately increasing the likelihood of government compliance. Of course, fighting also inflicts costs on the, on, on the defender as well, which reveals that the challenger possesses the power to hurt. By employing a measure of force, the challenger reveals that his threat isn't empty. Schelling and his rationalist disciples predict that challenger states will gain coercive leverage from raising the costs of resistance. As rational actors, target countries are expected to become more pliant as their adversaries reveal additional punishment capacity in the form of ever larger amounts of pain. In sum, a key legacy of Schelling is that escalation helps to promote concessions by lending credibility to the threats, namely by signaling that challenger states possess both the will and capability to impose physical costs for non-compliance. Since the September 11 attacks, many political scientists have been applying this exact same framework to non-state actors, particularly those that escalate to or with terrorism. For non-state actors, there's little question that terrorism enhances the credibility of their threats in seeming accordance with mainstream rationalist theory. Terrorism is unquestionably costly to the perpetrators. First, it's costly in blood and treasure compared to the relying on less extreme tactical alternatives. In her historical investigation of protest, Erica Chenoweth confirms that, in fact, participating in a terrorist campaign is much riskier or costlier to the perpetrators than were they to engage in nonviolent resistance tactics. 
Second, there's little question that the response of target countries in the face of terrorism is often disproportionate. And, and John Mueller, I think, has, um, has demonstrated that, indeed, in the face of terrorism, uh, target countries have a tendency of overreacting relative to the direct physical costs of, of the terror. And third, non-state actors that employ terrorism are clearly willing to countenance the audience costs. Perhaps more than any other tactic, terrorism does in fact offend critical constituencies of support independent of the target. And some recent work by Audrey Cronin shows that indeed that this is one of the leading ways in which historically terrorist groups have ended. Because of all these costs to non-state actors for adopting terrorism, scholars agree that using this tactic credibly signals the resolve and thereby enhances the credibility of their threat, etc. Of course, terrorism also adds credibility to threats by showing that the perpetrators possess the power to hurt. Donardo shows how, in comparison to terrorism, nonviolent tactics like labor strikes and boycotts and sit-ins, these, these sort of tactics don't require any physical capabilities like strength or youthfulness or, or stamina or, or whatever. Nor do these more moderate tactics require arms or ammunition or the training to use them. So relying on these nonviolent tactics doesn't resolve a crucial question under anarchy, which is whether the perpetrators actually possess the power to hurt. Whereas terrorism leaves no doubt that the perpetrators can in, can in fact impose real physical costs for noncompliance. In recent years, a number of empirical studies have carefully investigated the relationship between organizational capacity and terrorism. Terrorism is, in fact, a, a weapon of the weak, but only in the sense that its practitioners are non-state actors who are necessarily weaker than their government adversaries. Consistent with bargaining, uh, with bargaining theory, Page Fortna finds that in the context of civil wars, rebel groups that escalate to terrorism tend to be stronger than those who don't. Victor, similarly, Victor Assal and Karl Rothmeier, they show that group membership size and other organizational resources are significant predictors of terrorist lethality. A case study in Al-Qaeda supports this assessment by showing how its violence peaked with organizational capacity. Conversely, other scholars like Mike Hurwitz and Mia Bloom, they show that some groups have wanted to use terrorism but were essentially too weak to muster any sustained attacks. Formal models, therefore, appear to rest on strong empirical ground in the common tendency of taking terrorist violence as a proxy for group capability with additional attacks revealing greater organizational capacity. When political scientists apply bargaining theory to terrorism, they naturally predict that non-state actors should gain coercive leverage from adopting this tactic in proportion to the amount of violence, of terrorist violence, that they're able to employ. IR scholars like Andrew Kidd and David Lake and Barbara Walter and Robert Pape and many others, they say that in accordance with mainstream rationalist theory, non-state actors should, should do better at the bargaining table 
from adopting terrorism and that the more lethal the terrorist violence, the better in terms of coercing government concessions. This bargaining process is often modeled with governments modifying their posterior positions based on the presumed resources of the organization as reflected in the number of civilians that it's able to kill. In some, just like other forms of violence, terrorist violence lends credibility to threats and is therefore expected to coerce government concessions, especially as the level of terrorist violence increases. Bargaining theory is notoriously difficult to empirically test. And yet, disconfirming evidence would show, first, that escalating to terrorism doesn't actually promote concessions and, in fact, significantly lowers the likelihood of government accommodation. And second, that escalating with terrorism by inflicting you know, even more civilian casualties further impedes bargaining success. Increasingly, empirical studies are reaching both of these conclusions, challenging the external validity of bargaining theory. Todd Sandler, for instance, has recently analyzed a new data set of international hostage incidents between 1978 and 2005. He exploits variation in terms of whether the perpetrators kill anybody in the course of the hostage crisis. What he finds is that aggrieved groups gain coercive leverage from exercising physical restraint because killing the hostages actually lowers the likelihood that the perpetrators will obtain their demands. I also have a working paper with this same data set, Iterate 5, where I think I provide even stronger evidence that, that aggrieved parties gain coercive leverage when they do not kill the hostages and that relying on, on uh, a, a less painful um, tactic uh, is actually superior in terms of inducing government concessions. And this is true, by the way, after, after contending with and controlling for all sorts of tricky selection issues that you can imagine. Similarly, Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan, they have a couple new statistical studies where they show that non-state actors benefit at the bargaining table from relying on more moderate tactics, from relying on, um, on nonviolent tactics like, um, like sit-ins and protests and boycotts, and that when these same groups escalate to violence, again, they lower the likelihood of government accommodation. All of these studies that I'm describing are large and observational coercion studies. So the dependent variable is bargaining outcomes. But economists are finding uh, congruent results or similar results using public opinion data rather than bargaining outcomes as the dependent variable. What all of these studies show is that in the face of terrorism, citizens are not cowed into supporting more dovish politicians. Quite the contrary, across target countries, terrorism shifts electorate, it electro electorates in support of the most politically intransigent uh, political leaders and in proportion to the lethality of the terrorist violence. So the bigger the terrorist attack, as measured in the number of civilians killed, the more likely it is that the electorate will come to support 
the politicians who are most opposed to making concessions in the directions in the direction of the terrorist demands. And it should be pointed out that these studies are all appearing at a very, inter at a very interesting time on the world stage, where we're seeing you know the Arab awakening or the Arab Spring, where you know across the Middle East, aggrieved Arabs are turning overwhelmingly not to terrorist tactics, but to nonviolent protest tactics, and I would argue with considerable success. In fact, and this may come as a surprise to you, it certainly came as a surprise to me, but beginning in February, bin Laden himself was apparently uh, recommending to his lieutenants to refrain from targeting civilians, including Western ones, because he was beginning to doubt that the violence was having the desirable political impact on the corresponding governments. This unusual um, convergence of empirics across disciplines and methodologies and even contemporary salient events runs directly counter to mainstream bargaining theory. In contrast to its predictions, the latest empirical evidence shows that for non-state actors, escalating against civilians actually lowers the likelihood of government concessions despite increasing the credibility of the threat. So this begs the obvious question. Why might escalation fail to produce superior, even commensurate gains when everybody agrees that it enhances the credibility of the threat? Almost in passing, Schelling drops a clue. He says that for coercion to work, the challenger must signal not only a credible threat to inflict pain if concessions are withheld, but also a credible promise to remove the pain in the event concessions are forth forthcoming, since otherwise there's no logical incentive to comply with the demands. For whatever reason, though, both Schelling and his rationalist disciples focus on showing only how violence lends credibility to threats without exploring the possibility that the violence may simultaneously erode the credibility of the promise. What both Schelling and his rationalist disciples neglect is what I call the credibility paradox. In international politics, the very escalatory acts that make a threat credible to the defender can render the, challenges pro the challenger's promise to him incredible. Mainstream bargaining theory appreciates how violence lends credibility to threats, but not the attendant risk of discrediting the promise. The credibility paradox is due to another new concept, which I call the correspondence of means and ends bias. The correspondence of means and, and ends bias. The presumed bias is that defenders are apt to conclude that a challenger harbors extreme preferences whenever he adopts extreme tactics. Because of this human tendency to confound the extremeness of a challenger's preferences with his tactics, escalation can render the vow to remove the pain unbelievable, even in the event that the defender fully complies with the demands. The extremeness of both an actor's tactics and preferences can be ranked on stylized continuum. 
the extremeness of an actor's tactics is normally ranked in terms of the pain or physical costs to the population. Indiscriminate attacks on civilians by either states, by either states or non-state actors are understandably described in the IR literature as methodologically extreme or tactically extreme, certainly in comparison to leaving the population completely unharmed. The extremeness of an actor's political position is normally ranked in terms of the costs of government compliance. At one end of the spectrum are moderates who want money, prisoner releases, or other tangible resources that are relatively easy for governments to accommodate. On the opposite end are extremists who want to, who want to harm the citizens of the target country for whatever reason, be it their ethnicity, their religion, their fundamental way of life, or whatever. If the correspondence of means and ends bias is valid, we should therefore find evidence that citizens of target countries do in fact tend to confound the extreme means of non-state actors with their presumed ends. More specifically, we should find evidence that when a protest group escalates to or with terrorism, citizens of the target country are more likely to believe that the perpetrators are motivated to harm them, even in cases in which the perpetrators clearly express moderate preferences, such as over money or prisoners. To test this mechanism, I conducted an experiment embedded in a survey. The survey research firm Polymetrics fielded my experiment over the internet on a large representative national sample of American adults. All subjects were presented with a simple vignette of an unidentifiable group issuing a traditionally moderate preference through the American media. The release of its imprisoned leaders in US custody in exchange for permanently demobilizing. But subjects were randomly assigned to two conditions that differed along a tactical dimension. In the control condition, the group surrounds a bunch of American civilians, takes them hostage, but doesn't physically harm anybody in the course of the confrontation. The same information was presented in the treatment condition, except the group escalates tactically by killing the civilians in its custody. To minimize framing issues, I paid attention to the formal aspects of the instrument by avoiding any derivatives of the word terror or any other emotive labels to describe either the coercive acts or the coercive actors themselves. The two conditions were therefore duplicates, except in the painful treatment, the group escalates tactically by killing the civilians in its custody as opposed to releasing them unharmed. Subjects in both conditions were then presented with identical multiple choice and ordinal skill questions designed to assess the perceived extremeness of the moderate group's preferences. Specifically, all subjects were asked these five questions and only these five questions. To evaluate whether the group is motivated to achieve its demand of freeing the imprisoned leaders in US custody or to harm Americans out of hatred towards them to rate the group's preferences 
from one to seven along this continuum with options of, of opting out to judge whether the group would in fact demobilize upon achieving its demand to free the imprisoned leaders in US custody, to appraise whether the group would derive satisfaction from Americans physically harmed in an unrelated incident that in no way contributed to, would contribute to winning back the imprisoned leaders in US custody, and to ascertain whether the group would continue to engage in the very same actions against Americans, even upon discovering a less extreme method to free the imprisoned leaders in US custody. Following convention and experimental research, I then applied a two-tailed difference of means test to observe scientifically whether the tactical manipulation alone yields significant variation in the perceived preferences of the moderate group. Answers to each of the five questions are strongly confirming of the credibility paradox and statistically significant at the 0.01 level and generally better than that. Compared to subjects in the control condition in which no civilians were physically harmed, those exposed to the painful treatment were on average 27% more likely to believe the group is motivated not to achieve its demand of freeing the imprisoned leaders in US custody but to harm Americans out of hatred towards them. 28% more likely to rate the group's preferences as the most extreme on a standard seven-point ordinal scale. 23% more likely to believe the group would not demobilize upon achieving its demand to free the imprisoned leaders. 33% more likely to believe the group would derive satisfaction from Americans physically harmed in an unrelated incident that would in no way contribute to winning back the imprisoned leaders. And 22% more likely to believe the group would continue to engage in the very same actions against Americans, even upon discovering a less extreme method to free the imprisoned leaders in US custody. As a robustness check, I also tested the mechanism with another vignette, again varying only whether the moderate perpetrators kill the hostages as opposed to releasing them unharmed. Subjects in both conditions were presented with the same set of questions to further assess whether the extremeness of tactics employed by non-state actors informs perceptions of their, of their preferences independent of their actual demands. And across questions, those exposed to the painful treatment were again significantly more likely to conclude that the perpetrators are bent on harming the American population, regardless of whether the moderate demand is granted. Schelling was the first to formally theorize that the type of violence used is itself part of the negotiation process. He often said that hostage taking is the purest form of coercive bargaining because the perpetrators can pressure concessions by ratcheting up the credibility of their threat with pain. My simple experiment shows how pain, yes, may increase the credibility of a threat and yet weaken the credibility of the promise, thereby undermining the entire logic of bargaining. This is the first controlled experiment that I know of on the mechanism of coercion. A concern inherent to this methodology 
is the trading off of external validity for precision. And yet, the results appear, external, appear to me to be externally valid in several important ways. The vignettes in the experiment are not based on some made-up hypothetical scenarios. Each tracks very closely with the most common international events from a leading data set on non-state coercion. Iterate 5 contains detailed information from over 1,000 international hostage incidents from 1978 to 2005. By far, the, most the two most common demands issued were for the hostage takers to demand from the target either prisoners or money. In vignette 1, the perpetrators demand prisoners. And in vignette 2, the perpetrators demand a small amount of money, though it should be stated that in the actual experiment, the order of these vignettes was randomized in order to, to minimize framing issues. But much more importantly than that, the historical record strongly indicates that citizens of target countries do, in fact, tend to confound the extreme means of non-state actors with their presumed ends. My case studies of target countries reveal that both their publics and leaders alike tend to perceive practitioners of terrorism as implacable extremists, even when they express relatively moderate political aims. For instance, after the Chechens began terrorizing Russia in the late 1990s, both the Russian public and President Vladimir Putin concluded that there was really little point in pursuing the peace process with the Chechens because clearly they were bent on blowing up Russia and killing the Russian people as opposed to obtaining sovereignty of themse for themselves. And after 9-11, Al-Qaeda's stated grievances about U.S. Mideast policies also fell on deaf ears for much the same reason. The Bush administration concluded that the 9-11 attacks were not only methodologically extreme, they were not only tactically extreme, they were evidence of an extreme ideology in itself, one evidently committed to, to harming the United States and, and, and killing the American people. We see the same sort of thing in Israel, where polls show that terrorism lowers the likelihood that the electorates will believe that the Palestinians would ever abide by a two-state solution, and that the more terrorism an Israeli perceives, the more likely he is to believe that the purpose of the Palestinian terrorism is to blow up the Jewish state as opposed to establishing a viable, contiguous state of their own. Content analysis since the early 1980s and many independent studies confirms that the global media tend to ignore the specific demands of terrorists and instead reflexively describe them as political extremists. As Thomas Schelling once, or I'm sorry, as Thomas Friedman once said about terrorists, their attacks are their demands. Political scientists shouldn't be that smug because they also are prone to confounding the extreme means of non-state actors with their presumed ends. Formal models on terrorism, for instance, often assume that, of course, its practitioners are extremists who are motivated to harm the population. And so for this reason, we wouldn't be surprised that a bargaining space doesn't open up. 
For political scientists to make this inference between the tactics and preferences of international actors is really quite something, I think, because the strategic choice literature emphasizes that observers cannot accurately infer the intentions of actors directly from their actions since these are shaped by the strategic environment. And, and, and this applies no less to terrorism, which everybody knows by definition is a tactic. It's an extremism of means, not ends, and indeed almost all terrorists, including the most lethal ones, as an empirical fact, tend to express moderate preferences. The credibility paradox certainly seems to have purchase beyond the tactic of terrorism. It predicts that extreme tactics other than terrorism should also underperform at coercion. And this is exactly what we're finding. Overwhelmingly, the civilian victimization literature finds that challenger states also fail to benefit in terms of coercion from targeting the population. Bob Pape, for instance, surveys a large sample of strategic bombing campaigns in the 20th century. And what he finds is that governments reach a superior bargain when they refrain from targeting the population from the air. In the most comprehensive and recent study, Cochrane and Downs exploit variation in the use of civilian victimization campaigns in interstate conflicts um, from, from, the, from the, um, both the 19th and 20th centuries. And what they find is that instruments of, of civilian victimization, such as indiscriminate bombings, sieges, missile strikes, they all underperform at coercion, regardless of the costs inflicted. If the credibility paradox is valid, there should also be evidence that, like terrorism, other extreme tactics also convey that the challenger is bent on harming the population. And there's some evidence for this as well. In the 18th century, Immanuel Kant warned governments from harming civilians because he worried that the surviving populace would come to view the offending government as hostile towards it, and thus a poor candidate for a lasting post-war settlement. Similarly, Ned LeBeau's case study on the Vietnam War shows that the indiscriminate bombings and raids failed to communicate the costs of resisting American demands. Instead, the South Vietnamese public concluded that what the Johnson administration was really after was to harm the Vietnamese people itself. This inference that inflicting physical costs on a population signals a commitment to harming it is sometimes modeled for extreme tactics in addition to terrorism. In a prominent application, for instance, David Lake models a scenario where terrorists bait governments into going ballistic on the local population in order to signal it, that it's extremist and hostile towards it, and thus a poor candidate, again, for bargaining. Attribution, attribution, attribution research within social psychology provides additional evidence that any instrument of civilian punishment risks signaling that the challenger harbors extreme intentions. A long-time focus of this research program is that the intentions of actors are not directly accessible to observers and must therefore be ascertained only indirectly. 
In the 1970s, the social psychologist Edward Jones demonstrated in a wide range of contexts that observers tend to interpret the actor's objective in terms of the visible consequences of the action. The example he would often give is of a boy who sees his mother get up out of her chair, walk across the room, and close the door, which silences the racket coming from outside. The standard inference that the boy is likely to draw is that his mother got up out of her chair, walked across the room, and closed the door because she wanted some quiet. The essential point is what Jones calls the attribute effect linkage, whereby the intentions of the actor are presumed to be reflected in the visible consequences of the action. This established heuristic accords with both the experimental and observational evidence that all instruments of civilian pain appear to signal deep-seated hostility towards the population, regardless of the actual demands. Finally, the credibility paradox is consistent with long-standing insights in political psychology that predate the post-9-11 research focus on terrorism and international relations. This research program highlights that the behavior of states also doesn't conform particularly well to bargaining theory. We know, for instance, that state challengers also struggle to convey their intentions, that a common misperception is to overrate the extremeness of their intentions, which impedes cooperation. That states, or I should say that, that the behavior of statesmen may also be seen as a reliable index of their intent because actions are harder to manipulate than words. That states also struggle to decouple themselves from negative perceptions. And that the durability of these negative images in the, in the face of discrepant information can lead to biased estimates which don't seem to be culturally contingent. In sum, there's wide-ranging evidence across research programs in both political science and psychology that the credibility paradox is not an artifact of terrorism, but more likely a, a universal feature of international politics. If this is the case, then all challengers must be selective in how they escalate. On the one hand, they need to impose costs on the target country and themselves in order to show that they pose a credible threat. But on the other hand, they have to incentivize compliance with restraint or risk being seen as an uncredible negotiating partner. Thanks very much.
which was a big problem for him ultimately, of course, that's how they caught him. But the point is, that in that case, he did do violence, um, and that got his demand accepted. Mm -hmm. Partly, only, obviously he said, you know, give me a nuclear weapon or something, he went about it, but he, all he asked for was something very small. I understand. So, um, so, so, so that would be a good test, um, because you have a uh, unequivocal terrorist issuing a, uh, a moderate demand, right? Um, so, so fair enough. I mean, the, the problem would be if, if that's what the empirics were showing systematically. I mean, I do not make the argument. Some of you may have read uh, this paper I wrote in 2006 called uh, Why Terrorism Does Not Work. And um, I, if I were to rewrite that paper, I would, I would change it a little bit because it does sort of imply that, you know, terrorists never achieve their demands. Um, and in fact, there was a correspondence after that where somebody um, tried to present a case showing, look, I found an example where terrorists achieved their demands. And, you know, in the spirit of academe, I said, no, he didn't. Um, but, uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that sometimes t terrorists do achieve their demands, and perhaps they wouldn't achieve them without terrorism. But, um, I mean, what I'm, it, it, you know, terrorism is, is very diverse, goes back historically, etc. cetera. It's, it's, it's actually quite easy to find supporting cases for almost anything, that, that you, that you, for almost any case that you want to make. And so the, 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 site, the studies that I cite are only like, the large end observational studies uh, with with uh, serious controls on them. Yeah, just it may break down somewhat at the demand, an extremely small demand, even if it's not very credible, even if, uh, you know, there's something very easy to do. If you demand that Saddam would say, uh, shave off his mustache, and then you'll, then you'll stop the sanctions. Uh, even if he doesn't believe you, he might give it a try. So at some point, if, uh, if the demands are really low, Uh, let me just respond one by one. Okay. Um, that's a good point. Um, you're, of course, absolutely correct. That is what Schelling says. But the key point, as, as, you, as you suggest, is that there needs to be, he doesn't, I mean, the, the key point is that some violence has to be held in reserve in order to uh, make the threat credible, right? Um, and so escalation um, would be predicted uh, to, um, to, to, to add coercive leverage insofar as it doesn't max out to the point where no additional physical harm can be, can be made. That's what I would say to that. Yeah, I can see that. Um, the second one is just the selection issue, which you mentioned, but then didn't really address. So, I mean, yeah. what the economic sanctions literature tells us is yeah. that it's precisely in cases where the violence is used that we expect it to be ineffective because the mere threat of it 
Yeah. So we're selecting on cases that where the target was the most intransigent and where the sender is running out of options. So just based on that alone, I would predict that when rebel groups resort to violence, we should expect low levels of effectiveness, i.e. concessions by the target. Yes, um, I understand. I mean, all like, coercion studies are really deceptive. You know, because uh, they seem relatively easy to operationalize. You know, you just compare different tactics and you compare the, the dependent variable of bargaining success after controlling for tactical confounds, you know. But, but, but you're right. I mean, in practice, it's, um, it, it is hard to operationalize them, um, mindful of the possibility of a selection effect. Um, I've done a lot. Saying, not, not just empirically, but just theoretically. Yeah. Right? Where violence is used, I, I mean, I think that's a, that's a good point, but I will say that people who do these large-end observational studies are are kind of sensitive to these issues. Um, so, for example, they might they not might they have done you know within case comparisons and things like that. Um, I mean, basically, what, what 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 these studies try to do is they try to look at sort of what independent variables would have a significant impact on the dependent variable. Um, and then they, 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 they include all of these controls. Um, so, they, so in the case of terrorism, right, or non-state actors uh, using terrorism, you might focus more specifically on, on sort of more specific theoretical arguments, like, well, okay, maybe non-state actors will adopt terrorism when they're comparatively weak, right? So, or, or maybe when they're comparatively weak relative to the target of the pressure. Or maybe when it's unlikely that they're, they're going to achieve their demands because the nature of their objectives might be more, more extreme. So I would break down that theoretical point, which I think is a good one, and, and, and empirical scholars have carefully controlled for the more specific um, sort of empirical ways in which um, you understand what I'm saying. Okay. I really like talking. I like your your theorizing. I think the bias you show, or you call it bias, is probably there. But I have a, I have a sense that maybe the mechanism is different than the one you're describing. And I'd like to see more. Or have to more like your vignettes, because it does seem to me that if I was reading this vignette and I we wanted to take it hostage and then they killed them, that they're you know they threw away their bargaining chip. So it does signal to that uh, they weren't just bargaining because they just threw away their chip. And it, it, so there's new information to that group. This is sort of a technical point on the experimental uh, control conditions. I think there's two things different between the treatment condition and the other. Two, two pieces of inference to be drawn. One is that these guys are even more determined than ever, but they also just threw away their bargaining chip, which says maybe they don't want to bargain here. So the other thing that changes once they start using violence is that they uh, sort of my demand for retributive justice now just went up. Now it's eye for an eye, two for a two. If you kill my yeah. mine, I'm going to kill one of yours. 
Can I just quickly respond to that point? Sure. Okay, so, and then keep coming. So, um, I, uh, I think that there are a number of possible mechanisms to, uh, to explain um, some of my empirical findings. Um, so, I don't want to make it seem as if I'm proposing the only mechanism to account for this. So, other people are finding similar empirics, and they have different mechanisms than I do. And actually, in some cases, I like their mechanisms, and I think that there's some validity to them. Um, so I just want to say that. The, 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 the point that you just made, I don't disagree. That, that could be a factor, indeed. Exactly. Then that mechanism would be working for non-involved populations. So, for instance, Americans watching, um, I don't know, Indians do this to the Pakistanis, third-party observers of this all going on should be drawing the same kind of inferences about the extreme intention of the perpetrators. And I don't think they do. For instance, Americans draw extreme intention to Hamas, but other Arabs and Russians and Chinese don't. So you, you have, it seems to be, wide variation on the inference drawn by different national perspectives Quick response. on the meaning of a specific act, where if you're right that the inference is inherent in the act itself, there shouldn't be that kind of wide cross-national variation in what killing hostages mean. That's a very interesting point, and I have not tested it because I had a limited budget for the experiment, <laughs> but it would, be, it would be interesting to see how other countries perceive this, and I suspect that what you're saying is correct that there's almost a unique relationship between the targets of the pressure and the perceptions of the offender's motives for doing it. I suspect that the international community would regard the preferences of the perpetrators differently. And, but, but, I, but I don't actually see that as a problem for my mechanism. Oh, I love so here's the mechanism I think that is going on. Okay. Is that once the violence is used in a cleaner experimental test, we just have a bomb a pizza parlor or something, and then make it clear they could bomb three more. You can just keep coming and coming and coming at more and more and more, but they did this one. Right? But it, is, it isn't as if they threw away their last bargaining chip. They, they could just be bargaining. So leaving the vignette, the notion that there are other bargaining chips still on the table that they could continue to play. But, th but, but I think what's happening is that people get angry. This is obviously a non-cooperative mother. Yeah. It's pissed me off. And so now I, I, I psychologically demonize them in a way that allows me to go in there and kill them. And without any remorse, and frankly, without any restraint, I can drop a, a drone missiles on their head without trial or, or any other thing. It's just they're, they're now beyond the pale. And one of the ways I justify that in my own mind is the extreme intention. Because what I'm going to do here, I'm going to get revenge. Mm -hmm. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to without restraint, to hell with international norms. And the only way I'm going to be able to get there mentally and emotionally and then even juridically, I guess, is to say their intentions are so evil and so beyond the pale, they deserve, they just warranted what's coming, which is the gloves are coming off and all rules are out the window and we're just coming at them. That's what I think about. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, is in terms of my questions, I don't um, just ask, so, do you think we should make concessions to these people? All of my questions are very specifically focused on trying to ascertain whether the tactics directly inform the nature of the, of the uh,
preferences. Anybody? I understand your question. I understand your question. Yeah, I mean. So is it really a bias or is it a different level of rationality from a more scarce resource position? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I mean, one of the key assumptions of terrorism within the terrorism literature is that the stated preferences of the perpetrators are a reliable indicator of their actual preferences. I mean, this is the whole, this is the whole idea that terrorism is a communication strategy, that they use violence to bring attention to their demands, and only that way are they gonna be able to. So it's a bias in comparison to their stated preferences, which are, are assumed, and I think for good reason, to, to reflect um, what their actual preferences are. But there does seem to be some resistance on the word bias, and I'm not um, wedded to it. Think of a group that issues demands where, and it continuously issues the same demands, and you would feel confident saying, uh, no, politically, they want something entirely different. Well, it's, uh, it's really getting out of Arabia, getting the bases out of Saudi Arabia. Huh? I think that there's no question that U.S. Mideast policies um, are an important determinant for the formulation of al-Qaeda.
I'll take that point under advisement. This is a working paper, but I, I don't address that issue, and maybe I should. Yep, please. I'm wondering if there's an alternative explanation to the story you're telling, which is that uh, in the United States there's just this prevailing discourse that we don't negotiate with terrorists, which is not, I mean, it's near universal, but there are, there's one case that I know of uh, in Japan from the 80s, 90s, uh, that the policy was actually to give, you know, to make concessions to terrorists. And uh, there's actually pu uh, public opinion research that shows that uh, the Japanese were willing to make concessions, that a majority of Japanese people were willing to make concessions to terrorists. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if that might not be explaining part of the story, is that when uh, Al-Qaeda made a truce offer to European capitals and the US, I mean, the way the, the, those offers were presented in the media, uh, the offers themselves were not, was not presented. It was that, no, we can't negotiate with terrorists. Uh, they're making these offers to weaken us and not to actually... But it was also, it was also that um, we don't believe them. They, they may be making these demands, but were we to, make, were we to give in, it wouldn't sate them. Um, but, I, but I do agree in the sense that um, whereas my observational studies both my own and other people's that, I'm, that I was referring to, those, are, those look at you know, a, a wide variety, a, a large number of target countries and in their response to terrorism versus other tactics, controlling for other tactical compounds. Whereas you're quite right, my experiment, the sample is um, the American adult population. So if I were to get some more money for this, I would absolutely uh, run the experiment on, on more countries. One of the difficulties is that um, the United States has the best polling, it seems like. Um, and so if the, the more sort of, um, I, don't, I don't know what the best way is to describe this, but the more unusual the country um, from an American, I don't know how to describe it, but it, it, it's hard to get polling data um, out of many of the countries that I would like to sample. Yeah, please. There's something also that I find very puzzling is that the, just the State Department in its country reports on terrorism doesn't even list the demands that the terrorist organizations make, right? Uh, there's a FTO designation and slash the older versus uh, humanitarian law uh, decision by the, the yeah. Supreme Court that actually says that it's illegal to negotiate with terrorists. So, I mean, there's something going on in the policy world which makes it nearly impossible to even think about negotiating with terrorists. And, so, I mean, that there's this thing out there that might be influencing the way people think about terrorism yeah. in a U.S. context. So. Hey, but, but I mean, that goes very well with, like, the, with the global uh, media coverage, uh, independent of, of, uh, of what the State Department does. Um, and interestingly, these studies, well, these are independent studies, um, and they go back to uh, before the, uh, the, the creation or even the idea of al-Qaeda. So it's not as if they're thinking, Oh, well, all terrorists, you know, because of Al-Qaeda, 
us be politically extremists. These, these studies are before that, when even more so than today, terrorists had um, more um, modest um, demands. Okay. <clears throat> um, thanks for your presentation. Two comments, questions. Um, first of all, it seems like the main takeaway from the presentation is the wisdom of political restraint. That if escalation to, to certain levels is almost counterproductive in the sense that it um, reinforces in the receiver of that theory with the view that, that your, your demands are too restrained. So that's kind of where it seems like the public. And so I guess this is sort of piggybacking off of what Adam said. I felt like it, there was something of a I don't know if it's an unfair characterization or just a selective description of what the literature says, in the sense that I think realism in two different forms has the same basic lesson, that the use of force and the threat of force is not always politically efficacious. It actually can be counterproductive, provoking a counterbalancing coalition mm -hmm. pursue the Germany too aggressively, and the security of mm -hmm. is, is gives the opposite lesson of deterrence theory, which is that the threat of the use of force actually results in a stiffened level of resolve in the recipient. And so, in that sense, your findings do sort of slip into that um, line of logic, and so I would just, um, I would like that to be mentioned, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and it also suggests that the extent to which formal modeling and bargaining theory, if they have, if you are fair, fairly characterized in the literature, say, you know, monotonically increasing uses and threats of force yeah. lead to concessions, and that, that just seems crazy to me. So I'm glad you said what you're saying. I can't believe yeah. I said that because it seems like there's not bargaining theory proper, but rationalism in the form of different forms of realism. Yeah. Hey, yes. So I, I guess I put that yeah. out there. It's, um, I mean, it, I, I think, well, two points. I mean, the first is that I, I don't disagree. I mean, uh, there are other sort of um, strands in IR which would suggest that uh, restraint um, is advisable because all sorts of negative political things can happen, uh, particularly on the counterbalancing. Um, in terms of the uh, basis of my claims, um, I mean, I, I think part of it is just a function of giving a talk, whereas in a paper, I could have like a big nasty footnote, you know, where I quote all these people, and, and, and I do. Right, okay. Um, second question and comment was, it was interesting to me how um, maybe the larger literature that you're study, studying was coding um, whether an act of terrorism was leading to a concession whether or not that was a success or a failure. It sounded like we found that terrorist acts lead to non-concessions by the recipient of terrorism, and therefore the terrorist groups, it's sort of just puzzling, why do they do it if it's like no concessions? Yes. To me, it seems like provocation is the point in a lot of cases. Yes. And you actually gave an example that towards the end, where the, the point is to cause the United States to overreact to 9-11, and because a step after that, everybody reacts to that to totally imperial time. And I, I, I agree. This paper is not about determining the incentive structure of terrorists. Um, so I, the, the dependent variable of interest is uh, bargaining success, right? Um, but what I, what I would never make the claim of saying is that um, because terrorists, because terrorism doesn't further the likelihood of their achieving their demands, that we're therefore dealing with completely crazy, irrational people, right? Because they can be motivated by other incentives. In fact, when you think about it, I've, I've made the case in, in, in other contexts that the hardening of target governments may reveal that the perpetrators actually want to perpetuate the conflict. And, and of course, the idea that terrorism is a form of provocation, you know, that goes all the way back to, 
to Frompkin and, and David Rappaport in the, in, in the mid-1970s. And, and as an empiricist, I find more support for that claim than the notion that what terrorists want um, is compliance. Because indeed, the, the, the modal government response is provocation, not the opposite. But it is, but it is perplexing because by definition, terrorists are political actors, and we do tend to assume that their preferences are reflected in their statements, and yet I haven't seen evidence to suggest that in a systematic fashion it, it, it increases the likelihood of, attaining, of obtaining them. But as a social scientist, you know, I, I am partial to the idea that we're dealing still with rational actors, and so that must mean that we're somehow misspecifying their incentive structure that they're deriving utility from their actions independent of whether the government complies. And that's particularly true in, in the case of certain rare groups that uh, express the types of objectives that would never be placated. You know, no, in fact, no religious terrorist group has ever achieved its demands, ever. So why, I mean, the likelihood of, of, of achieving them is, you know, I can't even imagine how small it would be, vanishingly small. Um, so what are they after? That's, that's a subject of debate and an interesting one. Maybe they're just slow learners. Yeah. Okay. I, I a question. Let me ask one final question. Um, in the, um, uh, have, you took, have you looked at uh, police? Uh, police frequently get into hostage situations, and there's a whole training exercise what you do there. If you have a couple criminals, for example, like two who two hostages, and they they want they want to be let free, and, you know, and they won't kill the hostages. And if they kill one of the hostages, I'm not sure what the reaction of the police is. It probably is that they are no longer willing to bargain, even though that almost certainly increases the chances of the second hostage to be killed. Mm. Anyway, they're they're they you know they're very uh, there must be handbooks on this that the police use. Part of their training, yeah. my, my fifth year. Uh, it, it would. I, I should look in that area. I haven't, but but I agree that would be very helpful. Possibly, yeah, and it would be somewhat codified by sort of seat of defense experience. Mm -hmm. uh, it may not be valid. You may not want to critique it, but, mm -hmm. but it would fit the theory. Did you? Let me just raise an issue that that occurred to me from a historical yeah. point of view because I've actually written about credibility from perspective of American policymakers in the Cold War. And you know, there always are multiple audiences that you want to be credible for. Mm -hmm. Often it's allies as much as enemies. Sometimes it's allies more than enemies. And I think of the use of coercive force by the United States in peripheral areas throughout the, the Cold War area. Often historians have uh, seen a critical cause being an effort to demonstrate to allies, especially in NATO, that America will in fact use force, which is a way of signaling to them that if push comes to shove in the conflict with the Soviet Union, American power is credible. So you might act in a way toward an adversary on the periphery, which doesn't improve your bargaining position, mm -hmm. which is paradoxical. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of double paradox, because you might actually right. think you are actually reassuring your allies that you yeah. are credible. And so if something ever occurs in a vital area, you certainly would use your full arsenal because look at how you're acting in a peripheral area. That makes perfect sense to me. I mean, I, I would sort of couple these comments together 
in the sense that what you're saying is that there may be sort of a, that, that, that if you look at it dyadically, maybe it's like irrational because it doesn't, it, assuming that the dependent variable again is coercive success, but if you expand the possibility of what the, what the driving you know, incentives are, then there may be some uh, effective strategic logic to this type of behavior. changes the game into one where you're no longer a bargaining actor or something like that. So one of my questions is just, why do you think that is the case? Why does violence specifically have this kind of effect that it changes the game? Because I can think of like a huge strike in a massive economy as having way more cost for a state. Um, but, uh, but because it's not violent, it doesn't have this strong effect on the, on the, on the political dynamic, right? So the unions in France might be cause more deaths or something like that than terrorists ever will in France, um, but th they won't be as politically effective because they didn't use violence. Um, so I wonder what's special about violence. Um, and then secondly, can you think of any groups who were really effective? Uh, the only, I can only think of like uh, the Black Panthers who didn't really engage in a lot of actual violence, but they were like training their, the, the young black youth so they were like, we, we can commit violence if necessary. I mean, in terms of the second point, I don't think I would need to find somebody saying this, that there are nonviolent groups that could, if they wanted to, escalate to violence. I mean, the Falun Gong has, you know, uh, about 100 million members. It's about the population of Mexico. I mean, if they wanted to use violence, surely they could. Um, in terms of the second point, I'm not sure how it's different than, than, than my answer in terms, I mean, my, my, again, my, my basic thesis um, and again, there may be multiple causal explanations for these empirical findings, but the, my, my, the originality of my thesis lies, I think, in showing that we tend to confound, you know, we, we tend to infer from the observable consequences of the actions, the presumed preferences of the perpetrators. And so when civilians are killed in particular, what we tend to conclude that based on taxonomies in the IR literature, that these people are extremists because their preference, you know, they're committed to blowing up the population. I think governments are, are trained, you know, they're there um, in order to, to, to protect the population. And so, uh, first and foremost, and so um, for this reason, we, we, we view them as, as sort of beyond the pale in terms of placating their preferences since clearly we can't consent to that. That's interesting in and of itself what you said at the end there, which is like that violence is more core to the mission of the state than, than other things. And so a, a, a concession to violence is a concession to that the state has abdicated its responsibility and is willing to bargain over its main responsibility, which is to be the one who basically, uh, you know, as the protector. tells us, yeah, like decides on who lives and who dies. Mm -hmm. And you can't allow anybody else to decide who lives and who dies. Yeah. So the state has to 
respond to violence because it's a threat to its basic authority. Yeah. So that's a different mechanism than the one that you've identified too, right? Um, it's supplementary, I would say. Su supplementary, perhaps, yeah. Um, which sort of leads me to the, I'll give you the constructivist interpretation of your argument. Just, uh, I'm, I'm at Ohio State. I'm prepared <laughs> for this type of conversation. Uh, but I think it's that ultimately what, what you have underneath your mechanism is beliefs and culture and discourse. And that really the credibility discourse is socially con is contingent or socially constructed because what really drives whether or not uh, citizens are willing to give in to terrorism or not is the discourse that we have around terrorism or maybe even the discourse that we have around what the purpose of the state is. Um, but those kinds of things are going to intervene between the, the, the political act itself of violence and the way that that is responded to. Um, because it strikes me to believe that terrorism could be more effective if everybody read your paper and then believed it. Um, we could allow terrorism to become more effective because you know, we know that this is the best way to avoid them escalating the violence or something like that because you're showing us that we're biased about their but, but, but I think you yeah. that bias for us right. and realize that they're not actually all well, I, I think and then bargain with them more. Right. And then they would be, become more effective. That's exactly right. Paper. That's exactly right. And I think that there's evidence for that. Like, um, take somebody like Richard Clark. Richard Clark was like the head of counterterrorism, clearly knows a whole lot about terrorists. And, you know, for since the 1990s, he was, you know, studiously reading um, bin Laden's statements and saying, like, look, this is what bin Laden is after. And then he heavily criticized the Bush administration for not reading, you know, for not reading um, these statements and saying, look, you guys think that uh, Al-Qaeda either doesn't have a point or that you know they're just crazy people, but I strongly recommend go back to Fatwa 1, go back to Fatwa 2. So I think that there, there is, in fact, variation um, in, in this mechanism in terms of, I guess, uh, the knowledge of the perpetrators. Right. Yeah. When I think of a, uh, a sort of counterexample successful use of ter terrorism, I think of decolonization struggles like the FLN in Algeria yeah. deliberately killed civilians, raising the price for the French. And ultimately, you could argue that the French made the decision that this was no longer worth the cost. I understand. Um, is that a separate? I mean, that, that's different from non-state terrorism, though, because it was a clear goal. It was an achievable goal. It was a goal that was in, you know, in in, in the process of being achieved in most yeah. parts of the non-Western world. Some national liberation movements use more violence than others. Mm -hmm. But you could certainly make a case that the use of terroristic violence was efficacious right. in certain national liberation struggles. I understand. So I mean, um, I'm trying to introduce a distinction, uh, what I call uh, terrorist lumpers versus terrorist splitters. Because there, as you know, everybody who knows who deals with terrorism, there's no universally accepted definition of what terrorism is. Um, so the, the example that you're giving um, is, of terror, uh, is of lumpers, it's lumping behavior. Whereas I personally, sort of in the tradition of, like, of, of terrorism scholars going back, tend to use a stricter definition of what I mean by terrorism. And so for me, terrorism is against non-combatants, particularly against civilians. Whereas the anti-colonial campaigns, were, and, and I look at that dyadically again, so it's between the perpetrator and the target of the pressure in terms of the target selection there. Is it civilian or is it military? So when a non-state actor attacks the target of the pressure, focusing on their military or government assets, I, I, I use a separate term for that. 
Um, what I will say is that the, the, the observational studies that I'm citing, um, they show um, that uh, terrorism, again, in terms of the targeting of civilians, um, controlling for other tactical alternatives, underperforms both in comparison to military or government targeting um, or in comparison to nonviolence. So there does seem to be a discrete effect um, in terms of the civilian targeting. Um, so briefly, um, the target selections in those campaigns that you're mentioning, and, you're, and there's no question that you're right, um, that uh, the anti-colonial campaigns uh, were, were in fact quite successful. Uh, I think that's Rappaport's second wave, uh, where he says, you know, this was really the only wave that worked. Um, um, but, uh, but, but A, those were against military targets, and B, I think you have a conflation of a number of other um, variables that would um, promote the likelihood um, of concessions, particularly normative changes on the world stage and uh, declining economic capacity to um, have a troop presence and, you know, all over the place, particularly post-World War II. I'm sure you're right in that case. I'm just thinking of what's, what's so interesting about the FLN case in Algeria is that, you know, it, 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 that, that movie Battle of Algiers was required viewing for the Black Panthers in the U.S., and I understand it also was widely viewed in the Pentagon after 9-11. And what many people found in, in, that, in, in the film was it really highlighted the revolutionary dilemma of deliberately killing innocent civilians yeah. one's goal uh, in much the way the, the film about, uh, well, yeah. I, I don't want to get it's, into another example, but, 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 but yeah. But also yeah. the counter-revolutionary counter yeah. dilemma, right? Yeah, well, the, the, French had, the French had to use torture to try and break down the, the uh, Algerian network, but I think if, what I would find, I appreciate your distinction between lumpers and splitters, where I, where I would find a, a kind of common ground is a strategic decision which is made that killing non-combatants, killing civilians deliberately is something that you think will advance your political goals. Because you've shown, I think, very well that yeah. for most non-state actors that we call terrorists today, it's counterproductive. Yet in a case like Algeria and in probably some other anti-colonial yeah. struggles, it was in fact productive. It did in fact enhance the ultimate goal. Well, I would, as, as the historical literature, yeah. anyway, has concluded in looking at the case of the decolonization of Algeria. I mean, yeah, I mean, we could go back and forth on this, and, and, part, and part of the problem is just because of the definition of terrorism. But Walter LaCour, for example, has said since the 1970s um, that these anti-colonial campaigns actually use, quote, little to no terrorism. So historians can disagree on this fact, depending on how you define the word. Um, I just also want to introduce another, just a small piece of my research that I think is relevant and interesting, and that is that I did a content analysis of um, everything, all Bin Laden's translated statements into English. So it's like thousands of, or maybe like a thousand um, pages. Um, and what I was interested in finding is which campaigns historically does he refer to as successes? And what I found is that um, something like 62 out of 64 cases um, were all, um, all made this, what I would consider to be a lumping error. They were all cases in which the non-state actor focused the violence on military 
as opposed to civilians. So those familiar with, with, the, with the fatwas will, will immediately see, hmm, maybe this really um, isn't terrorism. So bin Laden thought that 9-11 would have the same, apparently, according to these documents, would have the same coercive effects as when the Mujahideen attacked the Red Army in Afghanistan, um, as when Americans were attacked in Somalia, as when Americans and the French were attacked in Lebanon. In all of those cases, um, the, the occupier uh, withdrew. And so I think, I think uh, of course, that there's a, a distinct political effect when there's civilian targeting. And I do believe that the perpetrators fail to recognize this distinction, which has greater plausibility by the fact that um, scholars themselves often conflate these different targets, even though there are really opposite political effects. reason is because I don't know where constructivism starts or ends. Well, I've certainly... Anyway, I've certainly enjoyed coming and uh, I really appreciate the questions. It's a working paper, so yeah, I'll, I'll take these into account for the second iteration.